Alrighty. Welcome back, everybody, from our other recent hiatus. So, sorry, everyone. School. It's it's a fucking nightmare. <laughs> yup. And, you know, this whole fucking living under capitalism thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's just... For me, it was school. For um, the doc, you know. It was also school. Also school. And work. Yeah. But my uh, CS-163, that, like... Ugh. Like, yeah, I feel prepared for my next cs classes but good god that was brutal it's like it's work school is work it's a lot of it so yeah that's but hey i mean i passed all my finals Uh, yay it's, it's all over but for the shouting and I don't have to do anything until next year. Um, for me, all I've got is my like dissertation that will actually make me a doctor is mostly 95% of the way done. So, yay. <laughs> oh, yeah. It will no longer just be like a jaunty on-air name. It'll actually be a thing. <laughs> Fucking Noah on Twitter will have to call me doctor. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> but yeah, so we were going to get into a weekly and partially started riffing, also looked at the events and were like, right, yes, we live in the country where your life is worth less than a fucking candle and you can die in a tornado at the end. It's very important that workers stay on shift at the candle factory or the logistics plan or the racism factory. Um, They must remain at their posts. They must die at their posts, if necessary, to keep commodities flowing. Yeah, and, and that shit's just so unbelievably bleak. And I've also been like following the thing that it could happen here has been doing for the last few days about neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. It's been kind of like, okay, this is kind of interesting, but it's like, there's a key piece that not just they're missing, but is kind of generally missing from a lot of these conversations. And it's something we've also kind of like, not quite danced around on this podcast sort of like we're struggling towards a theory of money yeah like it's and this is something that is really kind of important for understanding why the world is the weird bizarre capitalist realist hellscape that it is and like without getting into any other shit like it's definitely a thing that is way more important than 
we think, especially like particularly when you see stuff on the left or like critical economics mm-hmm. or even like, you know, talking about how this whole exic- current form of extremely fucked up capitalism came to be. Um, so, yeah, we kind of sort of started riffing on that and how, you know, I guess our core thesis on this is money as it currently works is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like that's the chop shop theory of money. <laughs> I can say it again so that nobody misquotes us. Money is bullshit. Yes, and this is both descriptive and prescriptive. The entire concept of money is incoherent. And I realize this doesn't sound like much of a stretch. Like, to some people, this will seem obvious. Like, you know, oh, you know, money is all exchange value, and exchange value isn't real. Um, it's, you know, an outside force imposed upon us by the capitalist system. And, and you know, to be up front, this has always been true of money throughout history, that mm-hmm. whatever is used by societies that have currency, like, the way that value works whenever currency gets in to the question is automatically arbitrary and abstract yeah like it's always really arbitrary and contextual it's what is you know things like the value of like how many heads of cattle can you buy with an ounce of gold type shit it's you know well the answer is how many heads of cattle exist in your immediate area and now let's compare that to how that society values gold you know or strings of beads or tobacco leaves or like Sweden had a copper based currency for the longest fucking time because they had a huge ass copper mine. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like money's always been kind of arbitrary and speaking of arbitrary, by the way, before we continue, we do have a Patreon Um, $5 a month gets you advanced access to all our episodes and to our uh, specials, which we promise we'll be doing more of. Eventually. It, it's like buying us a cup of coffee every month. And it goes towards keeping up online and hopefully paying for even more cool shit. And potentially making it so we like would all have the free time to do some really awesome deep dive reporting type shit. Yeah. So, <laughs> we've actually introduced the Patreon before we introduced ourselves. That's that's funny. We're, we're kind of bad at introducing <laughs> ourselves, really. <laughs> oh my god. This is like the worst cold open. Um, welcome to Chop Shop Economics. <laughs> <laughs> we read this shit so you don't have to. I'm Miss Silver, and... I'm Doc Spider, soon to actually be a doctor. Hell yeah. And yeah, so we're we're not doing a weekly. I'm sorry. Or a bi-weekly or whatever fucking schedule we're on. I don't I don't know anymore. I don't particularly care anymore. Time is a flat circle. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It's it's less bullshit than money, um, but it's a thing. Yeah. <sighs> so yeah. So instead of doing our usual kind of regular, we're instead going to riff on this because this seems to be a point that folks keep missing and it's something we haven't really clearly put forward because it's kind of important for explaining things like why we really don't give a shit what the stock market does yeah i mean it's it's funny to watch them you know panic when they're on fire and all that it's all that stuff is funny but oh yeah it's not happening right now. <laughs> like my favorite weather forecast is and always will be Claudio the Chance of Stockbrokers. Yes. But alas, we are not currently in that situation. Um if anything, like I think Wall Street has kind of given up on COVID being like a thing that they price in. Or, you know, or haven't fully priced in yet. Like they've kind of hit this point where, you know, fatalism. They don't they don't give a shit. It's this is this will always be with us. And, you know It's an other people problem mm-hmm. for anyone who can't afford their Regeneron. Yeah. Um, if you're not that guy who like, you know, takes a COVID shot every Three weeks, there there is some weirdo who like boosts every three weeks for some god awful reason. Like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? Wow, that's just <laughs> like way too much time and money. Yeah, I mean, it's like this dude has like single handedly taken the shots out of the arms of like, you know, ten. 10 people in developing countries like what the fuck dude just get (sighs) two or three like the rest of us and and, like the way that money works is what makes it possible for one asshole to like (laughs) put 10 people's lives in jeopardy like that it's yeah yeah and like how so like this is a thing that like is a big part of this is how things are measured in our economy and what metrics are considered significant, like gross domestic product, purchasing power, um, inflation, which everyone's seeing a whole lot of in the news lately. Um, and on their, you know, grocery store shelves and everywhere else. Um, Mm -hmm. like the, like, fundamentally and this is something that definitely needs its own episode but the short version is that the way these things are measured does not seem to actually be corresponding very closely with reality anymore mm-hmm. like that i mean because there's been like long arguments within economics over whether or not gdp is even a good measurement to use um and what should constitute gdp like there's definitely a significant um faction with any con like the like field of economics who aren't like Marxists who genuinely put forward the argument of we should not include finance in this calculation because finance mostly serves a distributive function and doesn't actually like create capital or value in any way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you did that, the U S would have stopped being the number one economy a long time ago. Um, 
for example. <laughs> or like how inflation has failed to factor in things like the escalating cost of housing and rent. Yeah. Like two most obvious things that impact everybody's lives. I mean, it's like, I don't know. They've been kind of like the, I don't know that this is like the conventional wisdom, but like the way I've understood it up until like COVID hit was basically we've been on the edge of a deflationary spiral. Um, and basically the Fed has been, you know, shoving money into the furnace to, like, prevent things from going completely out of control. And, and, you know, deflation, for the folks who are just tuning in, is when a currency itself loses value. So, and that tends to look a lot like hyperinflation when that happens. Think, like, Germany in the early 1920s, when people were buying uh bread with wheelbarrows full of money Mm -hmm. like and it's often you know described as inflation because it led to hyperinflation absolutely but the root of the crisis was that the reichsmark was basically worthless um because it was overprinted and there were no like hard assets to back it up and this was still gold standard days so that was a problem yeah wait do are we are we saying that like inflation and deflation are the same thing? Well, like they c- inflation deflation can cause inflationary things. Mm. But that's more of like a monetary thing, like actual inflation, which is what we're seeing right now. Um is a result of and also like what you saw in the 70s, which we'll get into more in a little bit. Um is more like a product of there being like too many dollars chasing too few goods or that there's like serious problems, like mismatches between like supply and demand. Um, basically what we're happening, what's happening right now because just in time is shitting its pants. Like that's pretty classic inflation or like what happened in the seventies was there were like legitimate scarcities of certain like temporary like dis- like distribution scarcities of things like oil that led to the inflation of the price of oil which had knock-on effects on well anything that needs oil to happen in the year of our lord 1973 yeah which back then was everything and pretty much <laughs> the situation has not appreciably changed yeah so that's you know explaining the difference between those two things they can end up looking very similar because you know when your money becomes worthless then you need more money to buy stuff so Mm. therefore prices go up but if you are having a problem of there's too much money going around and there's a legitimate scarcity of goods then the price of those goods will go up because that's supply and demand um slapping you in the face both ways yeah it's like basically i'm saying like we've been you know riding the edge of a monetary deflationary spiral um which was one of the causes of the great depression it's very unpleasant (laughs) yeah 
And, you know, the quantitative easings held that off and shit. But, you know, this is all stuff that, again, is within this realm of people that are using measurements that may not be fully accurate, don't seem to actually account for things like value and use value and shit like that. Um, And then we get into just the... That's not even getting into just the absolute complete bug fuckery that is financial metrics so far we haven't talked about financial metrics we've just been talking about like fairly easy to verify economic metrics here Mm -hmm. like even if you could dispute how to build the gdp there's at least like components that make up the gdp that are you know you can go out and measure how much money did the oil industry make this year okay it was that many like hundreds of billions of dollars and like dead baby seals okay cool had several hundreds of billions of dollars plus dead baby seals to the GDP. Um, yeah, you know, you, you can discreetly measure that. Like when you get into finance, shit just gets absolutely fucking bonkers because of this totally glorious phrase called nominal value. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> some of this started because I started wondering aloud if there might be, like, a complex numbers theory of prices. A complex number theory of money, basically. Like, you know, when we, like, add up all the assets and liabilities like well you know there's this thing we call the real economy you know where money is exchanged for commodities commodities are sold for money you know commodities are used to produce other commodities you know the standard loops that you know capital describes This also is, by the way, why Marxist theory has run into problems describing neoliberalism. Yeah, because there is a fundamental assumption that Marx made that, in his theory, I, I get the impression he may, in practice, have realized that there is a sort of irrationality or incoherence that was possible, but he didn't have the tools to describe it. Um, He needed to describe how things operate under the normal system. And also, you know, it was 1850. They hadn't quite invented a lot of the fuckery of now. Like, capitalism still actually did function based on capital invested for commodities and technology spits out good sell for higher price Mm -hmm. keep the proceeds profit you know yeah there was you know an extremely high proportion of real value compared to imaginary value like you know, one could even say that imaginary value did not yet exist. Or did not exist in 
uh, in a quantity that was, you know, relevant. Yeah. At least we're not talking, you know, like, there certainly was, like, some sense of, you know, you could say there's imaginary value going on when there's anything abstract, but we're not talking, like, neoliberal... Imagination! ...kind of imaginary value. Yes. Like, that shit didn't quite exist yet, and... Like, the short version is, before we get into the whole story of how the fuck this happened, and why money is now bullshit, um, we gotta first point out how absurd these markets are. Like, when you look at, like, this nominal value, which is basically a way of saying, this is the sticker price for blah thing. And blah thing being like a mortgage-backed security or a like complex derivative or a swap or an instrument that only retain gains value when somebody else loses a whole shit ton of money and you actually could do something to make them lose that money. No conflict of interest here. Yeah. Totally not, you know, selling fucking <laughs> fire insurance to arsonists. Like, Wall Street totally doesn't truck in that. Of course not. Like, but when you look at things like, you know, according to, like, the Bank for International Settlements, for example, like, the estimated value of just, like, the swap market last I looked, which is one type of instrument, is, like, $7 trillion worldwide for this one category of instruments. That's, like, you know, well past the size of the U.S. budget larger than several most countries economies yeah in nominal value for an instrument that in terms of its actual function literally is just we are trading currencies or contracts or whatever and i'm slapping a small fee on top which is by the way where the money comes from for handling this stuff yeah like it's literally shipping and handling fees plus something else but therefore it's now worth money and you can do things like get insurance contracts and all kinds of other shit to protect this nominal value so when you start looking at like financial numbers and debt numbers and stuff it just gets completely fucking wacky yeah i mean it's like i guess another example would be bitcoin like right now the notional <laughs> value of bitcoin is $48,209.80 in U.S. dollars as of five minutes ago. <laughs> that is a nominal value. A Bitcoin has no use value. It is an abstraction. If you deleted all of the blockchain tomorrow, this notional value would be wiped away. It would be as if it had never existed and well except of course for the climate impact but you know that's a yeah. different thing i mean in practice you could probably quantify a real exchange value from like you know how much electricity it costs to mine a bitcoin and all that um i don't 
my understanding is the spread is not that good. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's when we're talking things like nominal value and notional value. Like this shit's important for understanding that these metrics and these numbers are just really just do not fucking work when yeah. you look at them long enough. And part of it comes from that first like finance managing part of it comes from finance like successfully arguing hey we're doing a thing that adds value we swear we're not just like passing around briefcases and calling it economic activity here um yeah promise scouts honor and then it also comes from saying well if you're going to count us as part of gdp then you have to include the notional value of our liabilities and our assets and everything else and that includes like the notional value of just complete and utter bullshit instruments mm -hmm. like it includes the notional value of hey my company that stockpiles gasoline includes in its value the fire insurance contract on the orphanage down the street why no reason <laughs> but that's part of our value as a company mr investor that's yeah. why we're a billion dollar company the um, van that holds the gasoline, the van that holds, you know, the trash cans of gasoline that we just picked up to solve the oil price crisis, and the trash cans contents themselves, they are all of the same thing. They are all value. Yep. Totally. And when they get rammed into that honda accord and explode both values are wiped away <laughs> and you know pay no mind that the value of the insurance contract that outweighs the value of those barrels of oil and that suspicious looking van <laughs> will only be realized when we do an arson on the orphanage or in the gang's case, accidentally ramming the van into that Honda Accord. Would you like to enter into a swap deal for that lucrative contract? No, thank you. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a gross oversimplification, but, you know, that kind of gives you an idea of the difference between, like, you know, when we're talking imaginary and abstract value and this really kind of imagination bullshit that's going on when we are getting into like this modern world of money as debt and money as bullshit yeah uh, i guess this is the part where we have to actually like step way back to how the hell this happened and how money did this <laughs> I guess. Yeah. So. I mean, the usual story that we get for how money happens is something along the lines of there's this material like gold or something that's within a society that's really nice and pretty, but is mostly only really useful for nice and pretty stuff. So... It's not practical for anything else, but it's easy to work with, so we can use it as a store of value, or like, you know, copper, or like, 
puka shells or whatever it is like literally when you look at the history of money there's so many examples of what holds store of value that anyone trying to say that gold has always universally held value is like full of shit um <laughs> just gonna get it out there now gold bugs suck on it um but that's you know i think would that be fair to say that's kind of sort of how like the general story people get for how money happens is people realize hauling my cow over to exchange for beans is sort of wildly impractical yeah all that barter that we totally did back in prehistory like like yeah david graber's got like a whole book on this um you should check it out but (laughs) yeah i mean i don't think his thesis was entirely wrong but like the problem with most economic theory is and this is part of what inspired us to do this episode is like the question of what happens at the limits once we begin to like exit the domain of real economic activity of you know there are always being like there is always money there is always commodities they are flowing in not quite equilibrium but something resembling it enough that like human civilization continues under capitalism what or happens so say. when that breaks down yeah so like to get at like this whole thing because that's usually the i guess you could say the story people get for how money happened um mm-hmm. i mean it's not like one day some person somewhere in the world that we can point to was like aha i have this concept and i will call it money um but like you know it's a thing that sort of independently arises in a lot of different parts of the world in different ways usually because you have some kind of state or state like like entity that's capable of enforcing things like laws and contracts and like doing things like minting coins that everyone's going to accept have value instead of like getting into some weird messiness of measuring out like rock gold dust or something um yeah like they like ultimately a lot of this comes back to you know we need to have some way to denominate the debts but the debts came first yeah and like and this idea of also like how do we get exchange to work in a way that can be easily controlled allows us to do things like raise armies and do more like elaborate forms of division of labor read usually excruciating but you know it is easier to do shit like build coliseums when you can aggregate the cost out into denarii. Um, yeah. <sighs> but that's that's sort of where, you know, you get money generally as a concept as it tends to follow the rise and fall of different powerful states. Um, and then the concept just sort of continues after that. Like, because, you know, you didn't need the Roman Empire around for the kind of currencies that were used in Europe to still be used. Um because the concept have already sort of been like you know stamped into everybody's face by legionary boots um over the course of several hundred years before um 
and for the so- the idea just to sort of self-replicate. Um, but generally, this is, you know, again, it's a thing that's really abstracted. It's very arbitrary. Um, and the things that are actual holds of value tend to be tangible goods. Mm-hmm. Like, you definitely had concepts of banking and checks and promissory notes and stuff like that. Like, that absolutely is a thing that develops in this time. And that's, like, how banking develops is people going, shit, it's not practical for me to walk around with, like, 100 fucking pounds of gold on me to go shopping. Um, Mm -hmm. I need somewhere to keep the gold that is not my house. Um, And that's not a hole in the ground or, like, a treasure chest somewhere. But, um... You know, you do get this kind of, like, representation of the thing that's storing value, but generally it's assumed that there's, like, actual thing in the vault to back up these checks and shit. Yeah. More or less. Yeah, and that that's, like, kind of what, like, economics had been sort of, I mean, this, like, improvising on, really, throughout, like the rise of capitalism and colonialism and all that shit is it just sort of was going off of like a kind of autopilot on, well, we accept these things have value. So therefore we're using them as the base for currency. And like the modern gold standard comes from when like Isaac Newton was in charge of like the Royal mint in the United kingdom and said, okay, we're going on a gold standard now. Why? Cause the UK has a stupid amount of gold sitting in the vault. So if we declare it as a gold standard, uh, we enforce a gold standard throughout our empire, then anyone who trades with us is going to have to play ball with us. Yeah. You're going to have to accept our currency, or you're going to have to trade directly in gold with us. Either way, we win. Yeah. So, again, money comes from states and institutions that can enforce money having value. Um... And so that's, that's and that value, of course, going back to the debt thing, that value is to denominate debt. Mm-hmm. It's like it's for denominating debt and obligation. It's to an extent for measuring um value, but it's also important to remember that up until you start getting to basically the eighteen hundreds, debt was not really treated as sacrosanct in the way that it is today in fact for like well up until like i'd say like the 1400s or something most of what we associate with banking was basically illegal in like christian europe the muslim world like lots of other places because charging interest on lending was usury and that was a sin Mm -hmm. Like, you could only do that to people who were not of your community. So, for example, like, Jewish bankers could charge interest on loans to Christians, or, you know, Muslim bankers to Christians, vice versa, you know, stuff like that. Um, So a lot of banking didn't really have these, like, denominations of, you know, bullshit money on the side, because you just weren't supposed to do that. Like, they, it starts to, but there still is, like you know lots of examples of like debts being abrogated or forgiven um like debt jubilees used to be a thing in pre-modern societies on a much more regular basis than we think because you know people in charge did figure out if we don't do anything about 
debt for too long, then we end up in a society of debtors and the indebted, and eventually the indebted will get so desperate they're gonna just try to fucking kill the debtors. Mm-hmm. Like debt holders, sorry. So yeah. Blah blah blah. <laughs> um You know, th- this is like this is a thing that's all the way in the fucking Bible. Like this is like this concept of we should forgive debts as a regular thing is like you know it's much older than we think and this whole notion of debt being like kind of sacrosanct is way more modern than the concept of money and debt yeah and that's because you know if there's too much debt in one section of society then eventually shit goes squiffy um so where does the you know favorite windmill of the gold bugs come in fractional reserve banking well that like develops along the way because banks start realizing oh we can actually get away with lending more money than we actually have in the vaults because they you know made the very clear observation of you know even if 90% of my customers are borrowing money from me at any given time, only 10% are actually going to be taking money out of the vault and everybody is going to be like also making deposits on a regular basis. So, you know, we can kind of get away with it. And like, you know, fractional reserve is a thing that just sort of develops because banks realize they can kind of get away with it. Um, Yeah. But again, theoretically that money is still backed by gold and the fact that everything's still running on like the gold standard and other like metallic related standards means that right and into like the 1930s that you have regular currency crises and bank crises all over the place that always root back to and then they ran out of gold or and then there was not enough gold in circulation so the economy died the end um yeah, there was even like this one like financial catastrophe that would have been like probably worse than 1929 that happened when like Teddy Roosevelt was president, that where basically Roosevelt and the Treasury Department got J.P. Morgan to bail out Wall Street because they fucked up that hard, and Morgan was that fucking rich. Um, yeah, and it's like, yeah, this. The fractional reserve bank mechanism basically lets you debase the currency, but, you know, you can only do so much of it, ultimately. You know, you have to have... You you still have to have that gold to debase. Yeah. It can't all be spoken for. Like, it's been argued... With a fair degree of credibility, I think, by monetary historians, that one of the things that was probably really decisive in the American Civil War was the California Gold Rush. Because it provided a huge flow of actual, like, hard currency, as it was referred to, into, like, the U.S. Treasury. Like, in the years leading up, like, 1849 on. And that the gold that wasn't in the U.S. Treasury was off in the mint in San Francisco. Um, so, you know. Well, out of example, range of enemy lines. <laughs> you know, examples of the shit that the gold standard got you. That it does, I mean, 
you know, not saying that was a bad thing. That was definitely a good thing. Fuck the Confederacy, but obviously. <laughs> but, you know, it it's not exactly the best way to be planning an economy or a society if questions over things like should slavery still be a thing are partially decided by where's the gold? <laughs> where are the shiny rocks? Like, where is this metal that literally the only thing it's good for is making jewelry and sitting in vaults? <laughs> Remember, this is before the real applications of industrial gold came about. You still got some, but this was before. Yeah, this is before gold started having a use value of its own. But yeah, so (laughs) this is, you know, the fuckery that is the gold standard. And the thing that gets us closer to money as debt, as it works very directly now, is the whole like Bretton Woods. So. I'm not going to get into all the details on it. Bretton Woods is its own gigantic thing that will start fights um, between economists of the same school. (laughs) So this is the short version. The Bretton Woods system was a series of agreements that the U.S. basically got to dictate to everybody else in 1944 and 1945 because the U.S. held the majority of the world's industrial output gold reserves and was lending money to all the allied powers during the second world war so they got to say this is how the capitalist monetary order is going to work now yeah and the way that it worked was you all can buy gold back from the united states and the u.s is still officially on the gold standard according to this scheme um but we're going to hold on to that gold but you can only buy it in u.s dollars so it's kind of this weird, like, one-step-removed gold standard, because everybody else is kind of sort of in between in weird places around the gold standard at this point in history, um, especially because of this thing called two massively destructive wars that sort of destroyed the global economy there. Um, you know, the little things. Um, so basically, you removed the whole, um, you can get your gold back out of the Bank of England thing. Yeah, by going, you have to get it from the U.S., and you have to do it in U.S. dollars. So it creates utility for the U.S. dollar in and of itself, Mm -hmm. and it also holds up the value of the dollar. Um, And this works great as long as the U.S. is the only, like, industrialized power that has not been bombed fucking flat by somebody or another at some point in the previous five to ten years. Um, So you get all this shit that and of course, the wealth is broadly, more broadly redistributed than now because of things like strong labor unions and like income taxes and shit. But you see the wealth of the world is basically pouring through the United States during the 1950s because everyone needs to buy from the U.S. if they want to be or look like an industrial power. Yeah. Like, that just is the reality. Um, And... As other countries, of course, reindustrialize, the American ability to just straight up dominate the global economy by sheer weight of fuck you disintegrates. 
and other people start going so we have all these dollars we'd like to start buying that gold back now so that we can you know get our currencies on their own firm footings oh yeah and also Bretton woods included like these fixed exchange rates so like you could exchange x number of pounds for x number of dollars and it's a negotiated rate um and so you get this weird semi-gold standard thing going on that's slowly deteriorating until finally in 1971 nixon just says fuck it we can't sustain this anymore and pulls the plug on gold convertibility which basically kills Bretton woods um and after that this is when well imagination this gets started so the 1970s is just sort of fucking mental for how money works because now you've got a system that's gone from currencies exchanged at fixed rates to now their rates are determined by the vagaries of international currency markets which look at things like the size of money stocks and shit like that and it just gets really wonky and volatile and unpredictable pretty quick and then in 1973 uh opec who the uh, organization for petroleum exporting countries they still exist by the way we've talked about them a few times on this pod um has been sort of in a long-running fight with the big oil super majors that are largely based out of the united states and the united kingdom mm-hmm. and there's lots of stuff going into this fight and it's something that goes all the way back to like when the oil concessions started back in the twenties and thirties. So without rehashing all of that, um, OPEC at this point represents close to a majority of the world's oil production. And while they don't have direct control over things like the revenues and stuff, they do get to set the rate on rents and can also do shit like, close down production pretty directly so what they do is they declare embargoes so they're refusing to sell oil at all to the united states the netherlands and i think japan Mm -hmm. um and also staged production cutbacks which causes oil prices to skyrocket and this is not so much because oil suddenly became scarce but because like the existing distribution systems for oil particularly in the u.s were kind of shite and easily disrupted so losing the stuff flowing in sort of quadrupled the price of oil in the u.s um and because oil is sort of necessary to do anything especially in the 70s that fucked the price of everything and the members of opec made an absolute fuck ton of money because you know the thing that their economies have been dependent on just quadrupled in value overnight so at least nominally and in real money they suddenly are making a whole lot of money like this is one of the biggest transfers of wealth in history like we're talking almost on the scale of like when spain looted the americas kind of wealth transfer um and they spend some of that money on like domestic development programs and stuff but because they're afraid of hyperinflating their economies which actually could have happened because they got that much money they instead invest a whole bunch in 
around $300 billion in 1970s money between 1973 and 1982 in American, British, and Swiss banks. And then these banks lend this money to people who now have to pay for more expensive oil, who then use those loans to buy the oil, and around it goes. And the result is you now have all of this money that's been accumulated and redistributed, and most importantly is doing things like collecting interest, and being securitized and turned into new like complex instruments and all kinds of other shit because of all that you're just sort of getting this situation where money is literally creating new money like this isn't like fractional reserve shit this is just straight up like these loans are now just sort of being rolled over and the added interest and all that is being treated as money that's real and exists. So you're getting this situation that happens in the seventies where like for really the first time ever, the private sector as a collective entity became responsible for creating more new money through lending and creating lines of credit and shit like that than governments actually minting and printing money. Hmm. And that trend has <laughs> continued ever since, by the way. I'm sure this will have no implications whatsoever. And of course, all of this money lives somewhere Imagination. in... God damn it. Because, <laughs> yeah, this is not like, this isn't even like the weird ersatz fractional reserve multiple steps removed shit that was Bretton Woods. This is just straight up. This money has value because we're saying it has value and we are generating more money by servicing debts and we are rolling over that money into the creation of more debts and by extending debts we are Basically giving money, not exactly, but, you know, granting money to these different governments and enterprises and all kinds of other shit. This is where the gold bugs start screaming and never stop. And, you know, they're not wrong. Yeah, this they're, not is, in, they're not entirely wrong. Like, this is patently bullshit um, <laughs> at this point. <laughs> like, this is the point where money really starts to lose contact with like even being an abstraction of use value mm -hmm. um like it's in that Keynesy like what's it McKinsey report um fuck they wish they were Keynesy um but <laughs> <laughs> it was in that McKinsey report that we riffed on in our last weekly that talks about how like assets and shit are the only place where wealth has actually been created and their big thesis is right now that, like, we need to create more GDP in order to um, bring asset prices back into line with GDP. But that's, I think they're misunderstanding the causal relationships here. <laughs> Yeah, like, they're sort of skipping over what happened in, like, you know, the 80s on, because, you know, we have the whole, you know, the the folks that It Could Happen Here did a pretty good hash 
of describing like the mergers and acquisitions craze of the 80s which creates more of this money that is created from debt for servicing debt and then becomes counted as real value by the people who own it Nothing wrong here. Nothing socially destabilizing about like destroying functional companies, uh, blowing up local and regional economies, Walmarting the fuck out of Main Street, and all these other things that are really good at creating a lot more of this money and giving more excuses for issuing and servicing debt. But mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> so basically, this is kind of why i want to title the episode um the debt standard or something along that line because this is what we've reached we have reached a monetary standard that isn't necessarily backed on the full faith and credit though that's a huge part of it it's basically just debt. It's all just abstracted debt. Everything is debt. Imagination. Or... <laughs> yeah. Essentially. Like everything melts away into exchange value. Um these values become totally deranged. Um, and we start seeing what the limits in the mathematical sense are. Are we beginning to exit the domain of the real economy numbers? <laughs> like, uh, and let's be clear, we're, I think we've already kind of hit those limits a couple times too, because, or at least come really damn close, like see 2008 or the dot com bubble or the Asian like financial crisis of the late 90s or the jobless recovery or, you know, take your fucking pick. Um, <laughs> we've kind of run into this of like suddenly the economy dies because Wall Street ran out of imaginary money for their bullshit contracts to securitize the housing market yeah you had companies that were downsizing or basically just shitting themselves to death not because their books were bad but because basically they're um (sighs) the person holding their line of credit was in deep on jp morgan securities (laughs) Basically, they their debt instruments got fucked with, and you know that's why you and your cohort no longer have a job. Th- this would have been, you know, after the GFC. Yeah, really. Like when you say it that way, it it's basically the same damn stupidity we had with the gold insert here, whatever other commodity standards, but bigger and faster <laughs> and worse <laughs> and, like, and you could argue yeah. <sighs> you could argue the problem is entirely artificial because the solution is to issue more debt 
the solution is to just issue more currency. Like, you could just directly make them whole. It's just numbers on a spreadsheet. At this point. And, and this is not just us spitting this out. This is like, you can google this pretty easily that there will be like high level economists who are like people who have been in this way longer than we have or people that like analyze banking and finance who will straight up say oh yeah the way that we describe how money lending works of the theory that a bank looks at their balances and the assets in the vault and then extends a loan based on that are bullshit and what actually happens is they just go in and change the number of zeros on a spreadsheet and they're done there's more money we didn't check to see if the bank actually has the assets to back it up it's all just SpongeBob. <laughs> imagination yeah <laughs> and that's like so incredibly important for understanding things like why Joe Biden won't forgive student debt, probably. Or do anything about it. Except turn on the debt machine again. <laughs> and lose the fucking election. Like a chump. Yeah. Because uh, there was that tweet that went around recently. The one where um, and I know they were doing bits, but it was like under um, Trump, my student loan payments stopped, and under Biden, I'm gonna have to face them again. Um, I don't care about policy. This is all I know. <laughs> this is all that I've seen happen. I'm I'm badly paraphrasing this, but you get the idea. Like this is this is arbitrary. He could just cancel it. It's just spreadsheet numbers. Like, it's arbitrary, and it's also coercive, because the hell of it is, is when you make everything debt, and you erase any distinction between money and debt, and it all just becomes this wibbly-wobbly fraudulent bullshit. (laughs) This debt standard that we're now on. It also means... Everybody who holds debt is now obligated by coercive measures to pay it off and to keep the people who hold the debts whole. Means they can't do shit like say, you know what, I actually am going to like drop out of the real economy for a minute and like organize a co-op or fucking like backpack across the country or whatever the hell it is you else it is that you might want to be doing outside or even inside the system that gives you more stability than so how much of my paycheck goes to the department of education today Mm -hmm. and the same is true of all other debts yeah it's like uh, i've talked about this before i'm staring down I'm going to max out. I know I'm going to max out. I'm probably going to take on either an ISA or private student loan debt because that's that's how you finance things. That's how you finance your education. You don't you don't get a choice anymore because mm-hmm. 
Because thanks, Obama, you turned off the money spigot on Powell, for one. And there were a lot of things that, like, fucked college prices. But it's like, at this point, I don't even care anymore. It's like, you know, I I need money to live on. Though, you know, the fact that student debts became, thank you, Mr. Biden, impossible to discharge through bankruptcy back in 2005 by legislation certainly had something to do with tuition prices shooting through the ceiling oh yeah like this is guaranteed debt like the feds will the feds if you know the debt is called in they'll pay the lender and then they'll go after you that's basically how it works yep so I guess this gets to the whole, what should we do about this? Because if all money is debt and it's debt that can never be paid off, because if it does, then money ceases to exist. I don't know. Nobody's actually tested that theory yet. Um, But, you know, what I, I guess this sort of gets to what's our solution. And it's really very simple. Just blow it the fuck up. <laughs> Abolish the value form. Abolish fucking debt. You want to, like, you want to kill capitalism in the least number of moves? It's really simple. It's called you somehow successfully do a revolution in the United States fast enough to seize critical assets and to be judged as legitimate enough to then say we consider the actions of the previous government to be illegitimate and all debts and obligations are null and void mm-hmm. then just watch the fireworks as capitalism just goes all the things at once <laughs> yeah i don't know that it would be fatal worldwide necessarily but it would be a mortal blow I suspect places where there's like loyalty to the system depends on things other than money that they might get through better mm-hmm. by virtue of keeping the loyalty of the people with guns. But, you know, like that was sort of the problem with when some billionaires sat down to go, hey, let's do our New Zealand apocalypse bunkers. And the guys they talked to were like, well, what happens when money stops being worth anything to pay your guards? <laughs> You know, it's, you know, the Rick and Morty solution, but, you know, it's a little more complicated to get there than that. You know, shit like debt strikes are a good place to start. Mm. Like, we can't wipe out all debt yet. But, you know, if, say, when the collection people start coming around in February and everybody says fuck it to paying their student loans that might be a nice start i mean i'd imagine there's going to be something a, a de facto debt strike going on by then anyway because a lot of those people will be too fucking broke to pay their student loans anyway but mm-hmm. i mean it's like 
if they try to like get me to start paying again, even though I'm in school, I'm in school, Nelnet. I was in school last time. Like, stop trying to collect. Ugh, that was that was such a nightmare. It started before this show. It was like, but Jesus Christ, they really wanted their money, and they. I had a loan with them. Outstanding. And the fuckers would not recognize me being in school as a valid reason for some reason. Like, their system just would not pick that up. And so, uh, anyway, anyway. Um, yeah, that, yeah, this is just, you know, better solution than all the, like, because, you know, there's folks like, you know, Elizabeth Warren, not commenting on the 2020 primaries for a minute here, who advocate for things like, you know, Tobin taxes or Robinhood taxes or like, you know, financial transaction taxes, you know, things that say, OK, Wall Street, you're going to have to pay a percentage of your bullshit money. But it whenever you do a bullshit money thing, briefcase passing exercise. But that doesn't actually do anything about the fact that the core of our economy is powered like the way that value works is kind of like building a nuclear power plant around a dirty bomb mm-hmm. now some like, of you may object to that being <laughs> literally impossible and yes exactly it's like, like building a car that explodes when it breaks 60 miles an hour Mm-hmm. That would sound like a bad idea, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you could do it in BMG, <laughs> but you know, no one would actually do that except for you know developing an entire economic system. <laughs> <laughs> it does guess. exactly that every decade or less. I mean, worth pointing out. Even though COVID is, to use a fancy word for a minute, an exogenous crisis, which means a thing outside the economy. Mm-hmm. Not going to get into the problems with that. But anyway, even leaving aside that COVID was like, you know, an outside context problem, you can still go back to like late 2019 and find all kinds of analysis from very credible, you know, outlets and people and shit that are going, look, this all looks like it's going to blow and pretty soon and badly. Yeah. And basically it did. And then they fired up the bunny printer and we got another round of QE and that's been basically keeping things on life support for now. But Just, you know, make more debt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that someone has to hold somewhere. So they have to find a way to cover that debt and so on and so on. It's Yeah, but it's like the, the funny thing is is like your access to credit is worse than ever. Like it effectively doesn't exist anymore. Um like if you're you're just a random person. Like you know, I mean, if you're, like, rich enough, obviously, you have access to credit, you you can go into debt. 
but oh, you can even theoretically you individual consumer can. It's just harder, and the terms are more onerous. And I mean, that's basically how <laughs> the economy's been papering over the fact that it doesn't work since the early nineties is just by making consumer debt cheaper and easier. So. I mean, that's, well, I guess that's what I'm getting at is that consumer debt, access to that has tightened substantially since, you know, the GFC. But everything is still built around that 90s assumption that, you know, we are, in fact, expanding consumer debt. We... There are cheap credit facilities available to everyone. Um, you can go into Hawk for like anything you care to name. And, yeah, you know. And there's who cares if you'll be destitute in five years? <laughs> you know, there's cheap credit facilities available if you're you know a fuck off bank. Mm-hmm. Not for you anymore, but for a fuck you bank, absolutely. And then, you know, you have to get the more expensive version to paper things over or go to school or pay for hospital bills or buy a house or get a car. Take I seriously like the extent to which everything just runs on debt and requires debt is just and the fact that this is how value is measured is so fundamental to why everything is completely fucked up and if we're not like if we're gonna start getting at some kind of solution it's gonna have to start with abolishing the core of an economic system that honestly if you explained this and like you know played this podcast for like marx adam smith um uh, and any of the other like big names from the 19th up to the early 20th century, including Keynes, like all of them except Keynes would be like, no, how the fuck does that work? And Keynes would be like, okay, I've played on like the London Stock Exchange a bit, so I have some idea how you could do this, but what the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> Everyone else is BSODing. The only one who isn't is like, why did you think this was a good idea? Yep. Why did you plug the fucking toaster into the nuclear reactor, you moron? <laughs> the toast may be edible in 600 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's, I guess you could say, that's like the chop shop program at this point is money is bullshit and the solution is to blow it up. Which is basically, uh, for the Marxists out there, that's, yeah, the, the communizers, the left comms, they're right. It's, it's time to blow up the value form. The value form has to end. No more value form. Nothing good will come of retaining the value form. <laughs> and it is worth pointing out that this is a thing that, you know, what's so great about this plan is it makes intuitive sense. Like when you look at like accounts from like the French and Russian revolutions of just, you know, spontaneous actions by peasants, usually one of the first things they would do is seize their like landlords account books and burn them. 
so that the account, like the accounting of debts, would just go away. Yeah. Like, <laughs> can you prove that debt exists? Not if you don't have the spreadsheet anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's that's kind of our plan. There really is, you know, if you could do shit that blows up debt. You know, the strike debt collective's great. <laughs> debt strikes are awesome. Um <laughs> Also this is this is why Mr. Robot is bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, no, if you blew up Wall Street then <laughs> like capitalism would be having like a seizure and a heart attack at the same time. Like you wouldn't even have time for Evil Corp to implement all of its weird plans. The economy would just straight up die. Like, you would not get to wait around for that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I guess that's been our Money is Bullshit episode. Mm. Or how the debt standard came to be. <laughs> Yeah. <sighs> we do have a Patreon. Once again, it is patreon.com slash chop shop economics. Yeah. Throw in a fiver and help us like rake through this demented nonsense. Yeah. Also, this is kind of a call for theories. Are there ways to measure this stuff? What happens at these limits? My kind of math nerdish, computational theoryish mind wants to know. Like, could we quantify this? It it make our like very fuzzy models a lot more accurate if we could actually come up with a way to do this that does not depend on bullshit numbers yeah imaginary numbers are fine i can i can work with those it's bullshit numbers that i can't yeah the numbers have to mean something <laughs> imaginary as opposed Imagination. to yes <laughs> so yeah i guess this has been chop shop economics reading this really fucking weird shit so you don't have to yeah bye everyone <laughs>